Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud. Our podcast series trying to address issues of European relevance, contemporary European relevance, but with uh, regard to uh, Europe's culture, history and civilization. Today we are going to have a bit of a special episode with a guest, a prominent guest, which I am very pleased and honored to have here. Many of you will surely know him. It's Professor Ivan Krastiev. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much. And uh, the reason why we are here is that, as again many of you may know, uh, that Professor has just published a new important book, which fits very well within the sort of goal of our um, podcast series, because it's a, one can say it's a work of um, an historical interpretation and the work of political psychology on the last 30 years of global history, although the focus is primarily but not only on Europe. Uh, the book is called The Light That Failed, in a very clear reference to Rudyard Kipling's uh, maiden first uh, novel. And uh, without further ado, I will go straight into discussing the, the topics of the book. Um, let me ask you a first sort of introductory question, Professor uh, Krastiev. You opened the book in one of the first lines or pages of the book. You report this episode when uh, one of the closest states to Barack Obama leaves the, the White House and is haunted by a very oppressive question. He wonders, what if we were wrong? Of course, the context here is of Donald Trump coming into office. So liberals wonders, have we misunderstood uh, the historical processes that drove developments in the last uh, 30 years since uh, uh, 1989. And therefore, my, quest, my first question to you is, uh, did liberal misunderstand what happened, in what way they did, and what is the main argument of your book? Yeah. Thank you very much. I do believe it was a very good question that Obama came with. And it's very different than the question what we did wrong, or who did wrong, or the Hillary Clinton's question what happened. Because the question which Obama asked was very much, could it be possible that we did not understand rightly the nature of the post-Cold War period? And I'm saying this because uh, uh, you're going to see an important kind of a contradiction at the heart of 1989. Because something that nobody expected happened, that communism is going to collapse at this very moment, we started to believe that we know what is going to happen in the future. We were so surprised that we get certain that we know what is going to happen. And I do believe this is quite important because Cold War was a special period of, due to the fact that it was a clash between two universalist ideologies that claim that future belongs to them. It was not just a clash between two superpowers that were basically armed with the nuclear. There was two totally different vision of history, two totally different interpretation of the nature of the European Enlightenment that was there. And in 1989, one of the sides, without losing a military uh, basically defeat, said, we lost. And this is critically important because basically the loss of communism happened even before Soviet Union disintegrated, even before Tiananmen, both Chinese and the Soviet elite knew that they have lost. They have lost basically their claim that future belongs to them. And then comes this special period in which the Western European democratic capitalism remains as the only universal model. And this is the famous the end of history argument of Fukuyama. And I do believe Fukuyama gets something right. 
Uh, it was a very particular moment in which this universal moment was there. By the way, Fukuyama is not the naive person that some people are trying to portray him who believes that everybody is going to be like the United States. And he was not also the triumphalist. Uh, if you're going to read the most popular books that have been uh, done in the 1990s, they were not triumphalist books. Brzezinski's book was called Out of Control. Right. Maybe just to follow up very briefly on this issue before we move into discussing more specifically some of your, some of your thesis, uh, you say Fukuyama got something right, but then there is another author that features in several pages of your book, uh, yeah. probably the anti-Fukuyama yeah. in the 1990s and 2000s, that's someone Huntington, right? Yeah. Um, you almost, towards the end of the book, seem to come almost to the conclusion that Huntington got a great deal of it, right? Because you say um, the collapse of Enlightenment communism ultimately, now we realize, also mortally injured Enlightenment liberalism and the, it, it uh, brought to the fore again some more atavistic uh, forces, the forces of nation, of religion, of culture. And this was a bit... Huntington's thesis of the clash of civilization. So how do you position yourself yeah. towards that sort of narrative? Uh, listen, I do believe that for sure uh, Soviet communism is the best enemy that liberalism can invent exactly because of its universalist claim. Uh, but at the same time where I do believe that Huntington, he tries to get the idea of the civilization very much totally based on the religious identities. Mm. And what we see today is that one of the major clashes from this point of view are within of Huntington civilizations and not between them. Uh, both the Sunni-Shia kind of a clash mm. on the Islamic side you're going to see it there. I don't believe we're going back to something which is neither Huntington nor Fukuyama. And this is a certain type of a return of the great uh, uh, power politics. Mm. Uh, uh, which people like Graham Ellison and others have been uh, pushing for. And this is the world which is divided politically and in the ambitions of the grand powers. Nevertheless, that economically, it is much more interdependent than ever before. Because one of the other stories of the Cold War was the two sides of the war have been living in a very kind of parts of their own. And from this point of view, civilizational clash of Huntington believes that civilizations is much more coherent than they are, in fact. And this is why I do believe that also Huntington got something right. But like Fukuyama, basically, his explanation is not going to help us to understand everything that is happening today. Thank you very much. Uh, there is one geographical area that is overwhelmingly important, it seems to me, in your book, although the book deals with um, other areas as well, and that is Central Europe. Um, this is an area that you know very well. And there is one concept which I think is at the heart of the book. You mentioned it briefly already. This idea of Im imitation and the idea that what is actually coming to an end is the age of the imitation. So could you tell us what you mean exactly by that and what, how this helps us understand what is happening in Central Europe? Uh, listen, for Fukuyama, Central and Eastern Europe was the laboratory of the world to come because Central and Eastern Europe was the place where the major conflict of the Cold War was taking place. And Central European societies, from this point of view, what I say is the age of imitation, what we're claiming with Stephen Holmes in the book is the following. First, imitation is a general characteristic of the human behavior. By the way, the French 19th century sociologists uh, uh, claim that imitation is another word for society. But something very important happened after 1989, which is not like any imitation. It's not because every success is imitated. By the way, this is the definition of success, something that others want to imitate. 
But 1989 came. First, there was a model based on institutions, based on style of lives, based on values, and this was democratic capitalism. And the imitation is not about imposition, it's not about colonization, it's not that the West went to the East and tell do this. It was East Europeans who said we wanted to be like the West. And this is why the idea of normality was so important for us. The second is that we have been imitating the model that have been changing all the time. This is not an abstract idea that you don't see, but for example, the West in 1989 and the West in 2020, to the extent that they are, are very different. They're different on the level of uh, also how they have been perceived by different uh, parts of society. So I'm always giving the example of a conservative Pole who in 1989 was so happy that his country is joining the West because he believes that the West is about going to church and uh, endorsing traditional values. And then suddenly, basically, this same poll said, what happens? The West is very secular. The West is much more liberal than it was in 1989. And the third part of this kind of an imitation story, which for us was important with Holmes talking about the post-1989 period, is it's not simply that imitating something that is changing, but the model itself is telling you how well you're imitating it. And from this point of view, of course, the European integration was the most kind of a factual type of imitation in which you have certain type of institutions, you have certain type of practices, and Brussels is telling you, you're doing this well, or you're not doing this well. So from this point of view, it's different than the normal type of imitations that we know. It's interesting, and I think this idea that you are imitating a changing model as a rather powerful explanatory uh, uh, value for, for what is going on. I am thinking, for example, about the recent conference on national conservatism in Rome. I don't know whether yeah. you have followed that, in which yeah. since the title, you know, God, honor, country, sure. John Paul II, Reagan, and uh, the freedom of nations. Yeah. So there is clearly in the sort of uh, right-wing, you know, national conservative uh, narrative, an image of the, of the West that is frozen in a way uh, in the Cold War period. Totally. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Part of the message in general coming from the far right is to try to basically freeze the West as it was in 1989. But the only problem with the idea of the Cold War West is that it cannot survive without the Cold War. Uh, and for the last 30 years, many things have changed. And it has changed. There was a generational change. From this point of view, it's interesting to compare how 1968 works in the Eastern Europe and how it works in the Western Europe. Uh, uh, and uh, as a result of it, it created this very strange sense of resentment against imitation, which was very well mobilized by some of the political leaders in Central and Eastern Europe, where the message was, we don't want to imitate anymore. And what uh, Mr. Orban basically said three years ago, now you're going to imitate us. Uh, so this was basically kind of uh, this circle which started with uh, the claim of East Europeans, we want to be like you because in a certain way we used to be part of you, and now started to come with the idea we are different. Of course, another problem with that is that it is heavily dependent on probably the image of Thatcher and Reagan as representative of the Cold War West. Of course, the West had already moved away from yeah. the Thatcher and Reagan oh, model totally, since the 1960s totally. in other regards. Uh, listen, this is also very interesting. When you talk, normally West Europeans are going to tell you, oh, but there is not one West. There was major right. difference between, for example, social democrats in Germany and libertarians in the United States. If the West existed somewhere as a very coherent model, this was only in the imagination of the Eastern Europe in the 1980s. <laughs> Look, I have one question. I think there is, uh, uh, at times in some pages, very explicitly, 
um, a sense that there is some liberal self-criticism, I think, yeah. in your book. Sure. There is a sense that there has been a liberal hubris, that there has been a liberal overreach, as other authors yeah. have, have called it. So the question becomes then, with hindsight, what do you think the West and maybe the East could have done differently to avoid uh, some of the inconveniences that came out of that sort of hubris and overreach on the liberal side? Listen, this is quite important because on, I do believe it's a very much self-critical book because when I'm talking about certain type of failures of liberalism, I'm telling as somebody who basically is part of this failure, not somebody who has been warning against this. This is quite important. But secondly, it's not an angry book because unlike many other people, I don't believe that if we have done everything differently, mm. it was going to be better. So from this point of view, I don't know exactly how the privatization is going to be done in the way that people are going to see it as justified, knowing that at the end of the day they are going to be winners and losers, and the social stratification is going to be part of the result of it. I do believe that there were three things that could have been done differently, and one is totally underestimating exactly the psychological impact of the fact of uh, imitation made as a kind of a canon of development. And from this point of view, the best example is East Germany. Listen, many of the things that we are talking about Central and Eastern Europe, for example, people are going to say political tradition, they don't have a rule of law, this is corruption and so on. But in Germany now, the Eastern provinces, they have the same legal system and to be honest, the same Dutch uh, judges that the Western Germany has. At the same time, if you see the votes of behavior, if you're going basically to see the support for AfD, you're going to see a major kind of a disappointment and resentment. And part of it is related to the migration crisis, but it's much more against the reunification. Uh, so it's not about the no generosity of the West, it is. The West Germany mm. was very generous to your Germany, and there is no doubt about this. So how are you owning your success? So this is the story. We have a, a motto of the book taken from an American poet from 18th century who said how it happened that we all are born original and so many of us die like copies. <laughs> uh, the idea, it's very difficult to imitate politically when the cultural environment in which you suggest is telling to be unique is important, to be original is important. It is not enough after one decade to say, oh, I'm doing everything that I have been asked to do. So this was the one thing that could have been done differently. And the other is the view of democracy uh, was that democracy is going to create just totally solving all the problems of society. It's not the case. But democracy has one major advantage, which I do believe in Central and Eastern Europe was slightly ignored. And namely, you should allow people to make mistakes. Because only by making mistakes and paying for these mistakes, uh, democracy is about the quality of experiences. And I do believe in a certain way what happened was that in 1990s and in the beginning of the 2000s, because of the democratization paradigm and the idea of imitation, because of the European accession, we had a very low stakes in democracy. In our countries, you can change governments all the time, and in my own country, Bulgaria, we have been doing it till recently every four years, but you're not changing much of a policy. And as a result, democracy cannot function if the stakes are too low or too high. And for a long period of time, they have been too low, so not much was changing. The famous uh, Mr. Kaczynski's uh, thesis about the legal impossibilism. And on the other side now, as a result of it, they became too high. <laughs> Um, thank you, thank you, uh, Ivan. Maybe moving for a moment from Central Europe to some of the other areas of the world that you consider based on this framework, uh, one thing I found extremely striking is your reading of Trump 
which is quite unconventional. You you seem to believe that Trump might be, in fact, might turn out to be a sort of worthy historical, you write at the point, uh, figure, uh, in this one sense that he is bearing American exceptionalism, a yeah. traditional uh, posture that yeah. has characterized American self-identification yeah. since the founding, basically, of the United yeah. States. Could you elaborate on that and how does it fit within your theory? Uh, listen, uh, one of the stories was, which people easily understand is why the imitator feels uncomfortable in the, which, in the world in which you should imitate somebody else. Uh, but the story with uh, uh, Donald Trump is that he made Americans to believe that the world that imitates the United States is not good for the United States. And to be honest, his argument, uh, one of the things uh, that we have been trying to talk about this book is Mr. Trump is not the most admiring human being that you can imagine. Uh, but as a result of it, people can discount some of the historical changes that he's bringing, and I do believe some of the historical change is important. And in this historical change, he's bringing together many of the criticism to the American society coming from the far left and from the far right. right. And one of them was the following. The United States never perceived themselves as a normal country. It was city on the hill. It was the moral uh, obligations. Even President Obama, who was also kind of a not great friend of the American exceptionalism, made uh, the famous statement during the Syria crisis. He said, there are other nations that can turn our eyes out of a crisis, but we Americans cannot do it. And then Trump came and said, it's time America to become normal. And to become normal means to take care only of its interest, to be stronger than others, uh, but not basically to feel any type of moral obligation. And I do believe this is a very important change in the way the America sees the world. Uh, he believes that America overstretched, and many are going to agree with him. Mm. Uh, and secondly, what is important for Trump in business, the imitator is the worst competitors. Right, they and he's a businessman. And so. he's a businessman. So you're taking the competitive advantages without paying the price for innovation and so on. So from this point of view, there was a very important book that Bernard Sims uh, uh, has published just uh, immediately after Trump was elected. And he said, is there three things which for the 30 years never change in Trump's view of the world? And there were. The first, zero-sum game view on trade. And secondly, what kind of victorious power America was after World War II if Japanese and Germans are selling our cars to us? The third was Iran. So this understanding mm. that victory means that Victoria should do better than the losers is very central to his understanding of the world. An interesting follow-up uh, to the discussion now would be entering into the role that the, the long neoconservative hegemony played in all this, but I guess we probably yeah. don't have time for this. So I, I but, but I want to agree with one important thing, yeah. which Trump made very clear, that the consensus that we talk about the American foreign policy was the elite consensus and right. it was not a public consensus. After the end of the Cold War, the American foreign policy elite managed to keep a consensus which was not rooted in the way the American public, both on the left and the right, was perceiving the world. Even I would like for a moment now move to a topic that you do not address directly in the book, but you have addressed in other books that yeah. you have written uh, um, uh, lately in the last few years, and it is very much related, and it's the crisis of the European project. Yeah. Um, there are two... Uh, sort of statements in the book. There are several that made me think about it, and I want to put them to you. The first is your conception of democracy. You write, democracy presupposes the existence of a bounded political community and is therefore inherently national. 
loyalty to the nation is a necessary precondition for any stable liberal democracy. I have instinctive sympathy. This is also my yeah. position. Um, but of course, it's a very contested position. And my question to you is, what does it mean for EU democracy and for EU prospects more broadly? Listen, the, for me, this is very important to understand that any democracy, including liberal democracy, is about inclusion, but also exclusion. There is one important thing that political community decide for itself, and this is whom you recognize as the part of the community. And this cannot be basically decided through the democratic process. This is the precondition for the democratic process. And from this point of view, the most important is how you're creating a community of faith. European Union has an institution and democratic legitimacy which is based on the legitimacy of these national communities. This is how the project is done. Right. And from this point of view, for me, it's quite important that we try to reduce democracy to the input-output understanding. Uh, democracy is not simply about what the system is delivering to you. Democracy is type of a solidarity which makes you believe that uh, solidarity with your co-citizen, with those whom you're going to co-govern together, is more important than many other solidarities. Because don't forget, uh, solidarity with the Greeks during the financial crisis is a very difficult solidarity. Because the Greeks or the Bulgarians, this is not the most suffering people in the world. They are people in Africa and others which have a much more tough life. So if you simply have a humanitarian understanding, why don't give money to them? And then, on the other side, if it's simply ethnic, why just not give basically to the ethnic Bulgarians uh, or ethnic Germans? So this is why, for me, this political community, which is not simply based on ethnicity, but is based on two things, certain understanding of a common history, but also common project for the future. Uh, and this is, you cannot reduce it to history, but you cannot decouple from this. And the idea that we are going to be in the future together, for me, is a very important for the idea of the political community that makes democracy viable. Uh, this is very interesting and striking also from the perspective of a sort of center-right uh, foundation for two things, because you stress the historical roots uh, of European unity as a community. And the second thing that you, uh, you place the member states and their democratic legitimacy back at the center. And this strikes me, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, as an attempt to cast a sort of more moderate justice, you called it, liberal vision of the European project, or maybe a more conservative liberal vision of the European project? No, listen, liberalism is always been, uh, don't forget, uh, the idea of a liberalism, which is perceived as a kind of a totally cosmopolitan version of the world, is also historically very new. All these democratic political communities has two sources. One was liberal, and this is very much political inclusion, the other was very much national, and this goes back to the revolutions of 1848 and others. I do believe that many people, because of many reasons, underestimated this connection, and they allowed certain type of a nationalistic symbols and others to be overtaken by far-right groups. I don't believe that the idea of a kind of a community of faith and collective, uh, collective understanding of the future is something that belongs to the, to the far-right. Mm -hmm. The idea of the citizenship is very much based on the fact that we matter to each other. And this is very central. And from this point, if you go back to people like Isaiah Berlin and others, and you're going to see that this is very strongly rooted uh, in the liberal tradition. I have one last uh, question, if I may. Uh, going back to your point on the likely return of power politics. And here we, have, we seem to have a problem in the sense that 
the you is the power in the world or the actor in the world that still thinks or seems to think in purely, purely Fukuyamian terms of spreading liberal democracy and animated by some sort of liberal messianism. Do you think that posture is outdated? Should it be changed? And can Europe change it? For Europe, it's much more difficult to change the language on which it speaks than for any other power in the world. Because Europe cannot easily introduce a realpolitik discourse for the simple reasons that different European nations does not share a common security threat. Mm. What is perceived as a security threat in Poland is not the same in Italy and the other way around. So from this point of view, European Union is forced to basically speak liberal in the terms of the case that it's going to talk about the win-win politics and about kind of a uh, common globals. But it does not need to be the same language that was spoken in 1990s. Uh, I, uh, I have been uh, writing a paper in which I said European Union was a missionary for a while I do believe better to redefine ourselves as a monastery. Uh, <laughs> and the monastery probably is a missionary in waiting, but otherwise our rhetoric is becoming to look empty. And there is nothing kind of a more self-destructive than an empty rhetoric. Basically saying to, that you want to do something that you are not going to do is demotivating both the public and the policymakers. So from this point of view, if before the question was how we're going to transform the world, I do believe that the real question Europe is facing now is in this very hostile environment from different stories, how we can defend the way of life that we basically uh, uh, support and that we like. Excellent. And I think that is a great note to, to end on. We will continue forever. The book is very rich and I really invite uh, all listeners to to buy it and to read it very uh, carefully. We could only uh, give you a sense of the you many can, ideas. It's enough to buy it, even you don't <laughs> need to read it. Absolutely. Okay, so thank you very much, Ivan, for being with us. No, thank you very much. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.